A senior was being interviewed by an admiring reporter. He said, sir, if you don't mind me asking, what exactly is your age? He said, I'll tell you, tomorrow I'll be 97 years old. That's wonderful. You appear to be in marvelous condition. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm doing fine. And you know, I don't have an enemy in the world. Well, that's, that's a beautiful thought. But how do you explain it? And with a twinkle in his eyes, he said, I've outlived them all. <laughs> uh, enemies. Somehow that word seems to make us uncomfortable. It seems almost in the Christian life to be a paradox. And yet somehow it seems foreign to the real world we live in. Enemies. I want to extend Christian greetings and a welcome uh, to all of you to this part of our worship and, and uh, also uh, bring you back to our study of Romans and uh, just to uh, chapter 12, uh, the text is verses 14 through 21. It would be nice if we would all be able to say with Will Rogers, he said, I never met a man I, I didn't like. And some of you might be thinking, you know, he, he never met my boss or <laughs> never met my, uh, my neighbor. Or some of you wives are thinking he never met my husband <laughs> or vice versa. Or some of my family. You know how many of your stories include hurtful relationships? Uh, People who had took advantage of you. You know, times of emotional distress. And even in the church, how often our relationships get strained and tested. It was Eugene Peterson who, had, who said, and I think he had it right, he said, when believers gather in churches, everything that can go wrong sooner or later does. So Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of behavior. You know, when we stop and consider the, the blend of upbringings, the expectations, the limitations, and the maturity levels that make up even this church, we begin to understand how easily conflicts arise and enemies can be made. But this area of enemies goes ways be, way beyond the church. It includes all people, believers and non-believers alike. You see, what God sets in front of us in this passage today are some rules of engagement. How we engage those who might oppose us. And let me remind you of the setting in which God places these words. It's in the context of a vital relationship with God, a life that's being lived for others. It's not about churchianity. Uh, it's not about uh, living your life in the power of the flesh. It's, these words are never meant for the unsaved. Uh, it cannot be done. Nor are they for those who are lukewarm and half-hearted. You're never going to be able to love or to bless your enemies. You can never uh, shelve those thoughts of retaliation or getting even. So these, these eight verses 
uh, are meant not only for those who have met Christ in justification, it is for those who have come back to the cross a second time to, for the, the crucifixion of self, dying to self, have, have met Jesus Christ as your Lord. Those who have come to be saved from themselves is what we're talking about. Those who realize their utter dependence, that their bankruptcy and their, their, just in their need for Christ and the power of God to live out the Christian life. In verse 1 we, of chapter 12, we, we see consecration. Being set apart for the service of God. And, and we reserve ourselves for the work of God. In verse 2, we, we see transformation. If, we, if there is consecration taking place, the next step is being transformed. Uh, we live for God's glory. We, we, we become a process. There is the renewing and the re renovation of your mind. You begin thinking different. And of course, transformation leads to, verse 3, evaluation. You begin to evaluate your life. Uh, you realize your, your purpose in life is to serve others and uh, not to live for yourself. You know, we've been placed by God into the body, a church body, the body that is edified and matures when every member gives and serves in some capacity. But it would have been great if God would have stopped at verse 13, the distributing to the necessity of the saints given to hospitality. And he would have just said, period, amen. But he doesn't. You see, these next eight verses are for the mature. This is, these eight verses separates the boys from the men. Or the men from the boys. These are not only words that where it deals with our enemies. They directly conflict with our inner desire, the, the nature that we've been born with. They fly into the face of that nature of, of getting even, getting our way. Um, so none of these, none of these, these eight verses, none of this is going to come natural for any of us. This really takes... The life of someone not only who's been born again, but who is living by faith in the power of God, walking with God really closely, and uh, having that vital connection, that daily connection uh, with God. As we deal, before we deal with these eight verses, I just want to clarify something. There are many who look at these next eight verses as kind of the ideal standard. These are things we aspire to, but those are not things that really are attained in real life. And uh, that, we, uh, that we can really pull off, but that's, that's not true. Paul says in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It includes this. So the imperatives that are placed in front of us are attainable for every child of God who chooses to surrender himself and live in the power of God, chooses to be led by the Spirit of God, chooses to be walk close with the Word of God, and uh, just have that close relationship. I want you to notice in verse 3, of Romans 
chapter 3, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. You know, there isn't one person in here who would say, you know, that, that isn't applicable for today. That verse applies. We're not to, to, to be arrogant or to, to, to walk in life in pride. We're to stay humble. Neither would anyone say of verse thir- or chapter 13, verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, that there is no power of God but of the powers that are be ordained of God. Talking about civil government. There's not one person in here that would say, you know, that verse isn't applicable for today. But isn't it amazing, sandwiched in between these two verses are a lot of verses that some people would just explain away and say, well, this really not for today. It's not for the child. If anyone, it's for the pastor who kind of lives in a bubble. All right? Well, it's for all of us. So let's dive into it. The first rule of engagement is this. Resist your natural human response. Verse 14, chapter 12. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. All of us have some very instinctive responses. I mean, some of those are outward. I mean, if someone takes the ball and throws it at your face, your natural instinct is to throw up your hands. Or if you slip and you fall, the natural instinct is to put out your hand to break your fall. Inwardly, we have just as natural responses. If someone throws a jab at us, the natural response is to just give it right back. Um... If uh, uh, someone who takes advantage of you in some way, the instinct is to mark it down and wait for the right moment. Uh, I have to think of George Bush. He said, revenge is best served cold. Write it down and wait for the right moment and then give it back. You guys all look really pious. I know you've all had these kinds of thoughts. All right? So stop looking pious. But here's, here's the clincher. Blessed means to speak well of. Speak well of that person when he points out a blind spot in your life. Speak well of that person. Speak well of the person who, who criticizes you. And when someone is, is, has done something that is downright unjust and even cruel to you, speak well of that person. You see, you see why this takes a, a very, very different nature. You see, this thing, this, this, this kind of response never comes from the nature that you and I are born with. The, the flesh will never pull off this kind of response. It takes someone who is truly born again, walking with God. You know, it would have been nice if, if God would have given us something easy to start off with, wouldn't it? Just like, like smile. 
smile at the person if he's mean to you. No, God says, speak well of that person. It actually means eulogize. Bless means to eulogize is what it means. It doesn't mean at the funeral either. It means to do while they're living. All right? So there's the second rule of engagement. And that is put yourself in the other person's place. Verse 15. It says, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward one another, one toward another, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate, be not wise in your own conceits. Instead of seeing things always from your reference point, your frame of mind, try seeing through the eyes of the one who opposes you. If that person's a non-Christian, try seeing it from his point of view. He has no Holy Spirit, he has no reason or power to live beyond the clutches of his fallen nature. He cannot control his lust or his tongue. He has no hope. He feels guilt. He is consumed by shame. And he struggles with his self-image. So when this person gives you his peace of mind, stop and consider how different life must look through his prison. And even if the other person is a believer, it still applies. Be of the same mind toward one another. Isn't it amazing how different life looks if, when we stop and consider the other person's point of view, their life experiences? Uh, when you're willing to slip in the other person's shoes for just a moment, isn't it amazing how... Uh, what the, what the Holy Spirit can do when you just stop and consider the other person, the kind of words that you find yourself saying, you, you, you step back later on and say, you know, that, that had to have been God because it couldn't have been me. The words that you use. Paul says, rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. Enter the other person's world for a moment you know what it takes to slip into someone else's shoes it takes humility you know an arrogant person never does that somebody who's proud someone has said proud proud people never go anywhere because they always think they've arrived isn't that so isn't that, isn't that so true no one is more unteachable than someone who is full of himself You'll never live this out if you always think you're never wrong and the others are never right. You just, you won't ever live this out. You know, some of the hardest words to accept is from someone who hates you, but they often carry a measure of truth. Words that those, someone who opposes you says in a moment of anger. Don't be haughty in your own minds, but associate with the lowly. You know what that means? Don't be a snob. Stay humble. Consider others. Be teachable. Stay vulnerable. Don't look for position. Be agreeable. 
Those are the kinds of things which not only keep us effective, but to keep us as a church, they protect us from dissension and division. So when someone takes a swing at you, stop. Don't resort to your instinct. Consider the one who is swinging, slip into his or her shoes, and forget about your rights and choose to bless. You know why that's so important? Because even the unsaved person can love someone back who loves them. Remember what Jesus said? What, what reward have ye? Why, even the publicans can, love or can demonstrate love to the one that loves them. We're called to bless when even people use us unjustly. See, this is the kind of response that sets you apart from everybody else in this world. Great many, even Christians, a lot of Christians. I couldn't but help think of Jesus had, well, this is what Jesus had in mind when he spoke of salt and light. You you realize that when Jesus speaks of salt and light, he touches on right after, notice he says in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say shall, Say all manner of evil against you falsely for my, for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for your great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Notice what he says. Ye are the salt of the earth. For if salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? For henceforth it is thenceforth good for nothing to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. And then he says in 40 years, the light of the world is set on the hill that cannot be hid. When you choose to respond, not in instinct, but out of the new nature, you become salt and light to the world. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before. It takes a heavenly perspective to pull this off. You cannot do it with an earthly perspective. There's a third rule of engagement. Never return evil for evil. Verses 17 and 18. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And if it be possible as much lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. As Christians, God calls us to surrender our right to get even. To retaliate or to pay back. When we get this, when we when we retaliate or we return evil, we participate with evil and we advance evil. But not, not only are we not to return evil, we are to provide things honest in the sight of all men. This is one of these verses that it pays for you to do some word study because it, 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 there's, there's more to it. The word provide in the Greek means to think beforehand, to take thought for, and to have regard for. 
The word right encompasses the thought good, noble, and honorable. And then put the two together, it says, we are to think beforehand what is good, noble, noble, and right in the sight of all men. One writer paraphrased this, never return evil for evil, but lead the way in what is good and right in the sight of all men. As Christians, we should be leading the way in what is right and what is good. You cannot do that when you retaliate. You advance evil. You know why we often fail at this? Why we often retaliate rather than a blessing and doing what's right? Because we focus on the evil of the one who is opposing us rather than on what is good and what is right. You know, as Christians today, it's really true of us and the current administration we have is in the government. Our tendency is to focus on the evil and the corruption of this administration, and they certainly give us plenty to focus on. But you know what destroys a nation? It's the moral decay of the people. It intrigues me that Abraham, when he pleaded with God for Sodom, he began with 50 people. He said, God, if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom, won't you spare that Sodom? And God says, yes, I will. And he, he kept bargaining with God. And he came down to 10 people. God, if there's just 10 righteous people in Sodom, will you not spare Sodom? And God says, yes, I will spare Sodom. Now, we're never told how many people were in Sodom, whether it was 10,000, 100,000, or even millions. But the point is, God says, if there were just 10 people who follow me with their whole heart, I will spare that city. You see, what destroys a nation is the people. It's the people. It's when we stop following God with the whole heart, when we stop living righteously. We like to blame it on our government. It's the people. Focusing on the wrong has never yet helped anyone do what is right. Now, I'm, by saying that, I'm not saying we, we stick our heads in the sand, we just kind of forget what's going on. No, it's not what I'm saying. But make sure you spend more time with God than you do the news. Okay? Now, this isn't just for the unsaved we face in the world. It works just as well in the church, in your home. There are so many marriages where there are two people who just kind of keep, keep jabbing each other, returning evil for evil. There you go again. You always say that. You're such leap. Kind of like ping pong with darts. Jab for jab. See, that game only stops 
when one person chooses to do what is good and what is right. Haven't you been delivered of that? Doesn't the Spirit of God reside in you? Doesn't he call your heart his home? Doesn't he give you those positive thoughts and choices to do something different? Sure he does. Besides, doesn't the devil tear enough people down for all of us that we have to enter in and start doing his work? John says Jesus came that he might destroy the works of the devil, not to make us better at it. You see, if we, if we lead the way into what is right, then living, then there opens a way for us to live peaceably with most men. Not all, most. You see, God comes into your life to change your life. Not to change your wife or your husband or your neighbor or your co-worker. No, he comes in to change. He comes in to change you. So stop blaming other people for your unwillingness to change. Your unwillingness to repent or to, or to, uh, to follow God. Stop blaming your parents. Stop blaming your spouse and stop blaming the church. God calls us all personally. There is a fourth rule of engagement. And that is leave all revenge for God. Verse 19, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. No matter how hard we, we try, in spite of all of our efforts to live right and be supportive, some people will still attack us. And when the time comes, it is hard to resist our natural instinct to fight back. But let me give you two truths that are going to help you understand something. The first truth is this, that the verse, verse 19 is abundantly clear that evil is wrong and it deserves punishment. Secondly, it also makes clear that God will at some point mete out retribution to the party that is guilty. No one gets away with anything, all right? So, understanding that, hopefully that gives you some encouragement to do what is right, to give a, 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 be a blessing and advance good instead of evil. Now let me see, let me show you how this plays out in living colors. We actually have a great in instance where it plays out. It's, it's in 2 uh, Samuel 16. Let me give you the context of this. Absalom 
is on the throne. Uh, he's pulled off a coup. He's stolen David's throne. And Absalom is just wreaking havoc. David is on the run for his life. And so you can imagine how, how hard life must be for David as he's, he's running from his own son. And Shammai, from the house of Saul, comes out, and notice what happens. And when King David came to Bahiram, and behold, there came out of men of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera, and he comes forth, and he cursed still as he came. And he cast stones at David, and at all the servants of the king and David, and all the people, and all the mighty men that were on his right hand and on his left. David was still surrounded with his mighty men, those 600 men I think there were. And, and thus said Shammai when he cursed, Come out, come out, thou bloody man, thou man of Belial. The, the Lord returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered thee into the kingdom of the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, and behold, thou art a bloody man. Then said Abishai, the son of Zerah, unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. You see, there's, they're riding along. Abishai, one of the mighty men, leans over and said, David, let me, let me take care of this problem for you. I can have his head off before he sneezes. You know what David's response is? Look at what David says. And the king said, what, I have, what have I to do with ye, sons of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David, who shall then say, Wherefore hast thou done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeketh my life, how much more may this Benjamin do it? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction, and the Lord may requite me good for his cursing this day. And David and his men went by the way, and Shammai went along the hillside over against him and cursed him as he went and threw stones at him and cast dust. And the king and all the people that were with him came weary and refreshed themselves there. Isn't that amazing? Here David had in his power, at the snap of a finger, he could have taken off his head. He said, no. Let God be the judge of this one. Maybe, I'll, maybe, maybe he's doing it because God told him to. And maybe because of this, God will show me, show me favor, show me good. You see how he leaves the decision for God to choose? Isn't it amazing? fifth rule of engagement is this. Be sensitive to your enemy's needs and meet them. Verse 20, Therefore if thine enemy hunger, feed him, and if he thirst, give him drink. And for in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. This is just not, this is not, only, not only in the New Testament, you find it in Proverbs, verse 21. 25, 21. If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. 
Be sensitive to your to your enemy's needs. You see, it's not it's not it's it's one thing not to return evil for evil. It's quite another to do something that's good. Uh, in, it says, "In doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head." Some suggest that this means we bring a shame and guilt to the cons to the conscience. Of the one who is opposing us. It is John Stott who adds this. That the coals are a symbol of penitence. Recent commentators draw attention to an ancient Egyptian ritual. In which the penitent would carry burning coals on his head. As evidence of the reality of his repentance. In this, ca in this case coals are the dynamic symbol of a change of mind. Which takes place as a result of the deed of love. You know, while this, while doing good may or it may not change the heart of our enemy, the greater purpose of doing good still lies with us. You see, by doing good, we overcome evil. Notice what verse 21 says. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. By doing evil, we allow evil to get the best of us and to be our master. It overcomes us. By doing good, we conquer evil. Let me show you a, a, a great illustration of this. 1 Peter 2.19, notice what it says. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffer wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. In other words, he's saying, if you, get, if you suffer because of doing wrong that you deserve it, because you've done wrong, what is your reward? I mean, but if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. And then he gives us an example. For, he, for even hereunto you are called, because, notice this, this is the example, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. That kind of example needs few words. Christ is our example. We have been called to follow Christ. Follow his example. That's why we do not return evil for evil. Let's bow. You know,